Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Gentle Parents Unite podcast with Vivek Patel, that's me, and Sujai Johnson. In this week's episode, Sujai talks about bullying and how we can support kids through it, both when they're the person who's being bullied or perhaps they're the bully, and also how we replicate those systems in our home. And then I'm talk also about how to set collaborative limits with our kids in a way that feels empowering and brings everybody together, because limits are a source of stress for parents a lot of the time. So here we go, everyone. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this, and here we go. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Coaching Call. Before The Coaching Call, which I do every week, we give I give a little talk about something gentle parenting-related, and this week I'm going to talk about setting collaborative limits a little bit. Some of the things that can help us in setting collaborative limits. Now, the difference between a coercive limit and a collaborative limit is a coercive limit comes from authority and power and is non usually non-consensual. I mean, it's not good. If the kids are enjoying it, it's probably not so coercive So and are into it. So a, a, a coercive limit has a lot of drawbacks to it it has some short-term uh, short-term benefits of uh, you know like you can shift behaviors really quick or at least control them temporarily and there are all sorts of things that um, you know can make that kind of approach palatable tempting a collaborative limit is different because it really respects autonomy and consent and it's really about nurturing the relationship as you're working through the issue and this is connected to the lopsided tricycle, which I talk about a lot. The lopsided tricycle has three wheels, and it's only lopsided, of course, if one of the wheels is not inflated well. And the three wheels of human interactions and human endeavors, um, the first wheel is the content with what we're dealing with, the issue that we're working on, the project that we're working on, um, the thing that we're communicating about or exploring. That's the content. And then you have the second wheel is the emotional experience each person is having, which of course is affected by the content, but also affected by uh, you know environment and our own thoughts and our experiences and the way the communication is going. And then the third wheel is the relational experience each person is having, which means how is your relationship? How intact is it? How is the communication? How is the connection? How is the trust? And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, we get focused on the content, and we lose track of the other two wheels, which makes the tricycle go really slow, and it's really it's trouble, it's trouble getting anywhere. And then we often scratch our heads, wondering why that's happening. And a lot of the time, not all of the time, but a lot of the time, the reason that that's happening is because of the um, we're we're missing out on one of the uh, one of the wheels. So. Once we are aware of that, it can be really powerful. It gives us so much more empowerment because we see things so much more clearly. All of a sudden, if things aren't working, and we keep hammering away at the content, well, you've had that experience, I'm sure. You know it doesn't really go anywhere. But if we take that step back and go, okay, let me look at the other two wheels and see where is there an emotional need that needs to be worked on right now? Or is there some kind of repair or reconnection in the relationship or some, even an affirming of the relationship that needs to happen right now? So once we do that, and we can, we can step back from the, the content a little bit, which can be hard, of course, because we can get attached to the content, especially when the content is something that we know is going to help our kid. You know, it's not, 
Well, the control doesn't always mean, you know, we're horrible people. I mean, it never means that. Most of the time, it doesn't mean that. For some people, it is. <laughs> but, but generally, when we're controlling, we're doing so because we love our kids and we're trying to keep them safe. We're trying to keep them healthy. We're trying to help them through hard times. And we can see so clearly what they need to do to, to have that happen, you know. But the resistance comes and the battle comes and the power struggles come. And it's really challenging. And then when we do that, we defaults to the coercion and uh, and the power and control and authority and hierarchy. And our kids pull away from us. And then it's a spiral after that. Because when they pull away, we might get more tense. And our tension goes into the system. And the whole thing just spirals out of control. So when we take a step back and look at collaborative limits, it's a little bit different. It doesn't mean we're not paying attention to the issue and looking at how we can best manage it is that we're doing it in a slightly different way. And I'm going to give a few points. The first one is to be aware of and manage our own fear, which is exactly what I was just talking about. Our own fear can really get to us, right? Because when we operate from fear, we usually push and rush and stress. And that's always going to create a problem. It usually means that we end up creating the opposite of our intended effect, what we really want to happen. And often it, me, it not only goes the, the opposite, but makes getting back on track even harder. Excuse me. Now, at the same time, our fear has actual valuable information in it. You know, it's part of our warning system. It's part of our uh, body wisdom. It's part of our intuition even. And so when we have fear, it makes sense to pay attention to it, to feel into it, to listen to the messages that it has, to see where it's pointing. It usually points at something that needs tending. It points at something that needs uh, attention and care, and we don't want to ignore it. But we also don't want the fear to make the decision. We don't want the fear to create the strategy for dealing with the thing that the fear is pointing to, right? We want to do that based on our... Uh, knowledge based on our understanding, based on our principles, based on what we know about relationship and communication and all that stuff. So this is where I say one of my one-liners is that we can feel the feelings without operating from them. And that's really important. Um, or the, sing the singular is you can feel the feeling without operating from it. And this is really important because then on the one hand we're not repressing and on the other hand, the feeling isn't controlling us and controlling the, the decision-making process. It's not controlling the strategies that we use to um, you know, try and achieve our goals. And when we do that, oh, it's so good. It's so good because uh, we're so much more in control of the process, so much more influencing the process, and the process becomes more aligned with what we really want and how we want to be, right? So that's number one, is the fear. And we are talking about setting collaborative limits right now. And what are some of the things that really help to keep in mind when we're trying to set collaborative limits? So number one is be aware of and manage your fear. Number two is that we, when we express our concern or we express the issue that we want to work on setting a limit around, we want to make sure that our reasoning makes sense to our kid. Because if I just say, look, I'm really concerned about you not getting enough sleep, it really only sounds like it's your problem. It doesn't sound like it's their problem, right? And, uh, and so it has to really make sense to them. It has to be something that they can feel 
will be meaningful to their life, will help in the quality of their life. Um, this is what I call WIFM, which stands for What's In It For Me, W-I-I-F-M. And I love WIFM when we can remember WIFM, what's happening is we're remembering that we have to frame things, not have to. We're most effective when we can frame things in such a way that the kids understand what's in it for them. Why does it matter to them? Why should they listen? Why should they even engage in this exploration, you know? Especially if it's something that they enjoy and we want to limit, why should they even engage in that conversation, you know? So it's a lot of the time we, this is where operating from fear uh, can get us because we see that there's a problem. We feel the fear in our body because our intuition says, here's something to pay attention to. And then rather than slowing down, we jump in. But if we slow down, then what we can do is really think, well, okay, I clearly would like to see something happen here because I care about my kid and I care about their situation and I care about their development and whatever. And it could be sleep, it could be teeth, it could be food, it could be homework, it could be screens, it could be the way they treat their friends or the way they treat their siblings. It could be anything, right? Anything that we want to deal with. Um, and this is, I guess it even goes beyond limits in a way. It's anything that we want to address with our kids that you could take this um, this series of ideas around, these series of points. But what's, it, what's in it for me is so important because it, when, when, it, when it has personal meaning, when a kid feels that there's, like it's really addressing some need in them or helping them increase the quality of their lives, the quality of their relationships, the quality of their own relationship to themselves and to their interests, whatever it is, when we can help them see that, they're so much more likely to engage in the collaborative process. A lot of the time, parents tell me that they've created a collaborative limit with their kid, but really the kid really feels forced into doing it and it doesn't really make sense to them and they have to come up with ideas on how we can deal with this situation, but they don't actually think it's a situation to deal with. And so the agreement is only like half an agreement. It's not really an agreement. So if we want to get um, our kids on board and we want them to feel a part of the process, uh, it's really helpful if they have a sense of ownership over it. And that can only come if they buy into it, right? So that's really hard. It takes some, some thinking, you know? And I often, I've mentioned this a lot, that I, when I have something that, to tell my kid, to talk to about my kid, I will often take like days and days and days to really think about it and to really feel into what is happening and why and what is the benefit going to be to them and why. And also, even with the limit, recognizing the loss, that's part of it too, right? So accepting that part of the him is also accepting that there's a loss because a limit is a loss to some degree. Now, it's a loss that can produce a larger gain, and that's wonderful, but if the loss isn't producing a larger gain, then we might also need to rethink our limit. And that's what some, sometimes the deep thinking actually does that. We think and think and think, and we're like, okay, I can't really figure out how I'm going to explain this to the kid. I, I think I need to shift how I'm looking at it, you know? And it, we can have our own perspective changes by doing our own thinking. So that's beautiful. All right. So number one, be aware of and manage your own fear. Number two, uh, we want it to make sense to them. That's with him. Number three is to be aware, again, be aware of, and I like to say reject, but you might want to say manage, but I like to be, I like to be stricter and sterner with certain things. So re I'm going to say, I'm going to use my language, consciously reject parental authority. So this is a really hard one also, because we're, in many ways, we're programmed to see parents as an authority. 
Um, and in the adult-child relationship, we're programmed to see adults as the authority. And even if we're working at releasing that ourselves, it's still in, in us and part of us. So when we go into a conversation with our kids, and I, I try and do this anytime I'm interacting with a kid, and even my kid now, I still do this. I, I, I give myself like that moment. You know, we talk about micro self, uh, self-observation, right? So this is exactly it. I give myself that moment of self-observation and I say, Vivek, you are not the authority here. And I really be clear about it. You do not have authority over this human being. You don't. And, uh, and of course, I have power over them in many different ways. But how I use that power is what really counts. How I engage with that power. Not even when you say use. How I engage with that power is what really counts. So, so when I step into the communication with my kid, and even when I'm practicing in my own head what I'm going to say and how I'm going to introduce it, um, I'm very careful to see my kid, to feel with my kid that we're equals, that we're human, we're both human. Now we're humans with different understandings of things, we're humans with different experiences in life, but that's like every relationship, you know? And so that, that can be something really beautiful and uplifting. It doesn't have to mean the kid doesn't know and the adult knows, right? But there are some things that I know that my kid doesn't know, and there's some things my kid knows that I don't know, and that's beautiful. And so we want that, uh, we want that mutuality. Rejecting the authority creates the mutuality, and I think that's what's beautiful about it. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't end up with authority in the relationship. This is something else about authority, and I think I need to do a whole live just on authority, that we can create a relationship with our kids in which they offer us authority, where, where it feels safe and good to them to offer us authority, because they know that when we, uh, when we guide them, that they can feel their lives are better, and it makes them happy because of that. So I think... I don't know, happy is maybe a simplistic word, but, um, but they, feel, they feel like there's a benefit to it, you know? And, uh, and I mean, if you watch my videos when I tell uh, any story about me interacting with kids, you can see how that happens. Not just once or twice, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over the last 25 years and more that I've been working with kids, that the way I interact with them, they, they want to trust me, they want to listen to me, they want to follow me, and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. So, next one is curiosity, which goes with listening. Curiosity and listening. Get curious about your kid's perspective. Get curious about their needs and their feelings. Get curious, really, like, really curious, like, actually curious, not putting on a show of curiosity because uh, you know that curiosity is, you know, better than, than control and you're trying to shift, although that's a great way to start, but, like, this is another one of the reasons that I practice, right? I think, well, I have this fear and I have this, this thing that I want to address and I have this, um, n- you know, my own needs around it and wanting to keep them safe and all that. And so I feel that stuff and I accept that stuff. But I also want to actually be curious about this person's experience. And in being curious and in, in, in exploring their experience, then I want to really listen deeply to them. And listening is like a whole... Uh, it's like a whole thing, right? It's a whole skill unto itself. Listening, I should do a live on listening. I wonder if I have done a live on listening. Um, but, uh, but listening is a whole thing unto itself because listening is, well, again, it's the tricycle, right? It's the content, the emotional, the relational. 
Um, listening also is about how we're processing the information as it comes into us. How, you know, uh, what judgments are we making? Uh, how much space are we keeping open for, uh, for what our kids are thinking and feeling? Listening is a whole thing. And it's something that we can practice and develop our capacity with over many years. Listening, listening and having that really deep empathetic response to our kids when they share their experience, you know? And uh, like, like, for example, I, like years ago, like 2015, I had this parent ask me, how do I get my kid to stop sucking their thumb? And I said, well, just ask them about it. Ask them what they, what, they, uh, what they feel about it. So they went back to the kid and asked them, and they came back to me, and they said, well, I asked them, and they said, I feel better when I suck my thumb, and I feel worse when I don't. And it was like so clear. <laughs> it was so clear this little one had such profound wisdom about their thumb sucking. And, uh, and then we had to move from that point because like that's really, that's a really beautiful thing for someone to say and we don't want to take that away from them, right? So uh, listening is a really powerful thing. So the next one is to share of yourself vulnerably. So vulnerably doesn't mean unconsciously or un- unrestrained because we don't want to make our kids responsible for our feelings, but it doesn't mean that we don't want them to know that we have feelings and um, and for them to feel our feelings with alongside of us, you know, there's just that it has to be well approached well, um, because you know, like having our kids feel our feelings and know that we have feelings is beautiful. But there's a point where we do it where we're saying uh, we will not consciously even, but we want them to be responsible for those feelings, meaning that. I want my kid to change their behavior because I feel bad or I feel afraid. And then all of a sudden, they have to uh, attend to our feelings and are able to go through their own natural learning process around whatever it is we're working with. But I still want my kid to know that I feel so deeply for them, that I care so deeply for them, and that I care about their well-being, and that sometimes I get afraid and um, and I want to, uh, you know, I don't want to operate from that fear. I want to work work on it with them. And like you, we, as long as we have like a certain clarity about ourselves and centeredness about ourselves, we can really share ourselves vulnerably with our kids, you know. And uh, and I think that's a beautiful thing. As like I said, as long as we're not using it to manipulate, we're really just sharing. And so that requires some awareness too, but all of these are skills that we need to develop as we go along. And, you know, I think this is a good moment for me to say that as I'm saying that, these are skills that we need to develop and that we need to develop capacity for. It also means we're not gonna be perfect at them and that's okay. We might try it and it doesn't work. Like a lot of people tell me when I try and empathize with my kid, they, they scream and yell at me they don't want to hear it or they put their hands over my ears. I even had one parent tell me that their kid made them promise never to do ears with them. <laughs> I was, I was, they thought I was going to be upset. I was, laughing, uh, I was laughing uproariously at it because I understand perfectly because it really does take a while to, um, to develop some capacity in these things. It reminds, me, it reminds me of that time that I was teaching a workshop at a, a dance festival parenting workshop at a dance festival called The Power of Empathy. But at one point, I was going on and on and on and on about empathy and ears and relating uh, to um, naming people's feelings and all that kind of stuff. And at one point, one, <laughs> this one guy a fr- who, who has become a friend of mine since, 
He was like, I hate empathy. I hate it when people tell me what I'm feeling. I just hate it. I feel like they're, uh, you know, like treating me like a child, which is telling in and of itself, right, that he would say that. And, um, and I just don't like it. I don't like being told what I like to feel. I said, oh, you seem really upset about that, man. And he's like, I am. I hate it. I said, yeah, you don't like being told what to do. He goes, I don't. I said, it makes you angry and it makes you feel like, uh, like people don't trust you to know your own feelings. He said, yes. And I said, I totally dig that. And he said, thank you. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I t- and I totally manipulated the moment on purpose. And then I stopped the whole workshop. I said, okay, before we go on, I have to be, I have to be transparent that I totally was just manipulating you there. And I apologize. I said, but what I did just now was I did classic ears on you. I empathized with you exactly in the way you said that you hated. And he said, oh my God, you did. And I said, how did it feel? He said, it felt wonderful. <laughs> I said, tell me why. He said, I felt so seen. I felt so met. I felt like you really got me. I said, yes, that's empathy. It takes a while to get there, though. So a lot of the time when people are trying to empathize with you, they are still developing the capacity. And as and you know, you can actually help the people in your life that are your supports get better at it. Like I remember once, um, I remember once a while ago, I had a, a friend I was talking to. And this is one of the friends that helped me understand empathy in my early days of, of learning about this stuff, because I used to always jump into solutions all right away, which is S, right? S is at the very end of ears for a reason. And ears, by the way, for anyone who's listening to this that doesn't know, stands for empathize, affirm, relate, and support. And so empathize is reflecting the feelings back to someone, letting them know you've, you've heard and understood them, or clarifying if you didn't quite understand and then A is affirm, letting the person know it's natural what they're feeling, affirm that it's a natural thing to go through that, it's a human thing, they're not broken, it's not bad, it's not wrong. R is relate, where I say, oh yeah, I felt that way too sometimes, and when, I, when things don't work out for me, I can get frustrated too, believe me. And so, but R doesn't come first, because if you immediately start talking about yourself, it kind of draws away from the other person, so first you like do EA, empathize, affirm, and sometimes it's empathize, affirm, E-A, E-A, and then R, E-A, E-A, and then R, like that. But then S is the last one, which is support. But I always used to jump straight into support. And, uh, and I remember, uh, so, so this friend helped me learn that. And then like maybe a couple of years ago, I remember we were having this call and I was talking about, oh, I remember even what I said. I said, I feel like, I feel like a failure a lot of the time because I have a lot of failure consciousness inside of me. And I said, I feel like a failure a lot of time. They said, Vivek, you're not a failure. You're helping so many people and you're doing this and you're writing all the articles and so many, and your daughter, look at your relationship. And I was like, stop, stop. <laughs> I started yelling at her, stop, this is not helping me. She's like, what? I said, this is not helping me. I didn't need that. I know all that stuff already, but it didn't change the feeling I'm having. And she goes, oh, oh, right. I said, what do, you, what do you need? I said, I need the empathy. You taught me that. She goes, oh, right. I just wanted to save you from your pain. I said, I get that, trust me. And so we had like a laugh about it and we did a do-over. I said, can I just tell the story again? And then you empathize? She said, oh, I'd love to do that. And we had a do-over and, uh, and it was so lovely and so connecting. And you know, like it's two, three years later, I still remember the, the story. It was such a lovely thing. So that's, that's all listening deeply, right? Listening deeply is a deep thing. So for those that just joined, we're talking right now about some of the ingredients in setting a collaborative limit versus a coercive limit that help us to do it with more effectiveness, to help our kids get more into it so that we're more centered and that kind of thing. So next is co-creating a solution that feels good to everyone. Now, feels good doesn't mean it's going to be perfect for everyone. Usually when we collaborate, not everyone gets everything 
because that's just the nature of having competing needs and feelings and preferences and neurology and sensory relationships to our senses and all sorts of things, right? Um, the way our minds work, the way our bodies respond, all sorts of things. Like we're very complex beings. Human beings are very complex beings. And so a lot of the time when we're doing a collaboration, we want to make sure that everyone feels that their needs and their feelings have been tended to, have been properly addressed, cared for, and included in the solution. So everyone feels good about the solution, feels good about the process and the solution, right? Um, the process is largely part of the solution because we're, we're, we're working on this together. Because uh, the process sucks, it's likely the solution's not gonna feel very good, right? So the whole thing. Um, so we wanna really make sure, and a lot of the time it's the parent or I'll say even in a, a different collaborative environment, it's the, it's the person who's kind of leading the collaboration because often a collaboration will have a leader and, uh, or a, mo- a moderator or a facilitator at least, you know. And, um, and so it's really often, but in, but in the case of our families, it's often, the, or it's all, I would say always the role of the parent to hold that part of the integrity because that's a lot of responsibility, number one. Number two, the kids are dealing with their own stuff. Um, We're the ones that can have the ability to zoom out a little bit more. We can uh, do more of our own inner work and con- you know, control and be aware of our emotions. And, uh, and then we can also look at each person like, uh, and see, uh, is everyone feeling tended to? Because a lot of the time, uh, and I've seen this again happen many times that will parents will go into a situation like that and the kid will suggest something that really makes the parent very happy that they're suggesting it, but the kid's not 100% behind it. But part of them is suggesting it because they want approval, because they want peace, because they think that w- is what is being expected of them, and they're not necessarily completely on board. But because it's closer to what the parent wants, the parent will often just accept it. But usually that whole thing falls apart. I'll say always that thing falls apart. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I'm not, um, I can't say always, because who knows, right? Um, but I mean, even if it doesn't fall apart outside, it's falling apart inside. So co-creating a solution that feels good to everyone has a lot of integrity in it, right? We have to have integrity. We have to be clear in ourselves, which is why I started with be aware of and manage your own fear. So the next one is to manage suggestions with no preference. Make suggestions, sorry, make suggestions with no preference. But no preference means when I make a suggestion, my kid is not going to feel from me that I'm going to be happier if they accept it and sadder or upset or disappointed if they don't. So like I might say, oh, I I think we should do it this way. And my kid says, no, I don't think. And you're like okay and then they're like i'll accept it and you know like you can accept it and still say okay but it still doesn't feel like you're really accepting it right there's still a judgment happening there's still that sense of uh, i have a preference and if we don't follow my preference something is wrong and you're wrong and it's wrong and so this is where no preference it creates like more of an open space for kids to really take in our suggestions you know like i was um, I was even with my mom. I was talking to her today. Hi, mom. I was talking to her today, and I made a suggestion. And then I felt, as we were talking about it, I felt that she was feeling pressured by my suggestion. I could feel it in the way she was responding. You know, um, maybe a little bit of defensiveness, a little bit of explaining. And so I stopped and I said, "You know what? 
I just wanted to share the idea with you, but I absolutely trust you to make the right decision for yourself. And, uh, and whatever decision you make, I'm going to be very happy with. I trust you. And she was like, oh, thanks. And she was like so happy after that. I was like, oh, great, thanks. Yeah, that's what I needed to hear. And, uh, and then, because I, I switched from preference to no preference, you know, and just in that one switch, it changed the whole relational system. So that was part of the tricycle, right? If I had just stuck to the content, thinking I'm right, and this is what needs to happen, but I felt the emotional shift. I also felt the relational disconnection that happened um, because she needed to kind of protect herself around it. And, um, and I immediately stopped. I let go of the content and I focused on the emotional relational and it shifted the whole, it shifted the whole system. It shifted the whole dynamic. Um, and by the way, Shivani has given me permission to talk about these things. Um, so uh, I have consent already and we talk about that fairly frequently just so everybody knows but I think it was a beautiful experience a beautiful example of the lopsided tricycle just now that tricycle totally had two two flat wheels or at least deflated and I quickly stopped pulled over and inflated those those wheels and it really made a big difference so when we make suggestions with no preference we're giving our kids the freedom to take that information in and make it their own rather than feel that they have to take it in because it's ours all right, the next is to expect the first iteration or the first solution to not work. It's usually not going to work because the first time you enter into a collaborative situation, we don't really know all of the different complex needs and feelings that are taking place. Um, it's hard to know the whole, uh, to understand the whole system and everything that's happening and all the influences. And also, we don't really know how it's, the solution is going to feel once we implement it, you know, because you can be like really super clear about it at the time and everybody's like hugging and high-fiving. We came up with something, but then as soon as you try and implement it, it's like, okay, this doesn't feel as good as I thought it was going to. And so when we co-create a solution, uh, so then when we, uh, when we expect that the first iteration is not going to work, then we go, okay, the other thing about it is there's no consequence to when, when there is a solution and an agreement, there's no consequence when it gets broken. This is really important. It has to be, the kid has to feel completely free to break it and change it if it's not working for them. And the only actual consequence is we all, as a, as a team, we recognize it isn't quite working and we go back to the drawing board and we make, instead of throwing the whole thing away, we make little shifts. We make incremental shifts. We change something about the environment. We change something about the timing. We change something about the location. We change something about, you know, the way we engage relationally. We change something and we try again and we try again and we try again. And this is an ongoing, really an ongoing process. But that actually is the process of how we learn to set limits for ourselves as we try something. Because this, this is the other thing, right? The next one is think long term. Not only am I dealing with like let's say it's food, not only am I dealing with this particular limit about this particular cookie, but I'm also dealing with their relationship with their bodies and food. And I'm also learning and dealing with their long-term capacity to think about their own limits for themselves and set their own limits for themselves, you know? 
Uh, my, my kid, I know I show off about her all the time, but my kid is a perfect example of that because we focus so much on her learning to set her own limits based on her own wisdom that she's so good at it now, right? Like way, she's way more disciplined than my wife and I. Because <laughs> like the two of us have to fight through all of our old patterns to be disciplined in any way, even in ways that are like super good for us, you know? And, uh, but this kid is like, is like that. And when she's struggling with it, she reaches out to her parents and we, and we work through it together. You know, even today she reached out to me and said, dad, there's things I need help with. I can't manage it all. And I'm just so glad when she does that. It's such a blessing when you have it. I hope that all of you, when you have a 25 year old, that they reach out to you like that. That's what so much of this is, work is about that, that, that long-term relationship and trust is, is maintained. And uh, yeah, so the first one is expect it not to work. That way, when the, when it doesn't, you're not going to be like, ugh, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, yeah, this is the next step in the process. It's not a problem. It is the next step in the process. Refinement. It's always refinement. Same with our own, our own learning. Like I said, you know, like we're always on that learning path. Um, it's the same thing with this, that it's a constant refinement. And that's a beautiful thing. So instead of seeing it as a problem and a failure, we see it as part of the process. And then, you know, again, when we when our kids, when something like that happens and our kids see us taking it as part of the process, taking it in stride, they feel so much more confidence in us because they know they can be engaged in their own awkward learning process and still be able to rely on us. And this is such a gift. And, uh, and the last one, which is repeating the first one is to be vig- repeating but uh, in a slightly different way is to be vigilant with your thoughts and reactions so managing being aware of and managing your fear is kind of in advance um, but during the process to really be aware of your thoughts and reactions and feelings feelings thoughts and reactions i should say because stuff will come up right stuff from our own childhood our own fear um, even fear that we're not reaching a collaborative solution and then I get tense. Look, we have to deal with this. <laughs> you know, as soon as you say that, that's the time to just stop everything and go outside and play ball, build a snow, build a snow person, um, draw a picture together, uh, roll around on the floor. Like just as soon as you hear that tone come out of your voice, just stop everything um, because it's not going to go anywhere good after that. So really be, that's why I say your feelings because that's probably where it starts. Then the thoughts that come from it where the tension and the fear and then the reaction when it comes out of our mouth or our body tenses up because because kids are so sensitive that even if your breathing changes like i've noticed this with my kid where she'll be saying something and i will tense up and my breathing will change and she'll suddenly go off in a different direction explaining um and i call it wrong explaining when when someone feels wrong i haven't talked about wrong explaining for a while when someone feels wrong and they start to explain as soon as i see someone explaining their wrongness away I know um, either they're feeling wrongness or I've projected wrongness or both, especially with kids. So as soon as I notice wrong explaining, again, I want to shift directions. That's an emotional relational thing, and I want to shift back down to those wheels. But when I'm really aware of my feelings during the process, so my kid is doing this and I'm expecting, okay, there's going to be times I'm going to feel in the flow and there's going to be times I'm going to feel stress. Let me be aware of that so I can manage it carefully, right? And so when we have that vigilance, um, and we manage it during, um, and we know it's not, we know, okay, so let me go through the whole list. So <laughs> I was about to go do it from memory, but I'm just going to do it. So the first is be aware of and manage your fear. The second is we want the, the limit 
um, that we're exploring or the issue that we're exploring to make sense to them, that they know it's going to benefit them, what's in it for me. The third is to consciously reject parental authority in the process and then get curious and listen deeply and then share yourself vulnerably and in a conscious way, a consciously managed way. Then co-create a solution that feels good to everyone, having the integrity to make sure everyone feels deeply tended to and heard and cared for, even if everyone's not getting everything they want, but still we all feel like we've really been seen and heard. Make suggestions with no preference, so the pressure isn't there. Expect the first solution to not work for multiple reasons and revisit. Think in the long term so that we understand that there's many things other than just the cookie that we're dealing with. And be vigilant with your thoughts, feelings, and reactions. So that's it, everybody. Thank you so much. This is a few ideas that I hope can help when setting collaborative limits. So I wanted to start off today talking a little bit about um, bullying. It's something that is really coming up for me in relation to my own life and things that I've been through. Luckily, it's not coming up with my kids currently because, you know, COVID, so (laughs) there's not a whole lot of social interactions going on. And yet, um, it really is a complex topic that definitely, um, as parents, we should really be digging into it and putting a lot of focus and attention on ways that we can help our children through incidences of bullying and help our children um, if, you know, they find themselves in a position where they might be bullying somebody else. And I want to start out by saying that bullying is incredibly complex. And it's not generally something that exists, like, in a funnel. Um, And the next thing that I'm going to say is that I sincerely believe, much like for those of you who are present a few weeks ago when I talked about entitlement, I, I sincerely believe that we're teaching bullying through the way that we parent, through the way that we as adults interact with children, and to further that impact, there are adults in places of power around children, teachers and coaches and all kinds of adults around children who are so seeped in their own ableism and inability to see things clearly and their own pains or whatever it is, that there are plenty of adults around children who engage in the bullying. And I think And, you know, this might not be what most people say when they start talking about bullying. You know, we really go after kids and we talk about how mean kids can be and how kids are just learning social structures and all of these different reasons why, you know, kids might be being bullies. And one thing that we're not addressing is the the fact that adults are teaching children these bullying tactics. They're giving children in the parenting and um, adult mentorship to children's world, they're giving them very hard-handed and bullying relational tools, and they're engaging in a lot of that bullying themselves. And, 
you know, I want to be clear as somebody who went through quite a bit of my own bullying in school that not only did adult, adults fail to protect me, adults often perpetuated it and adults played the favorites game and they went as far as making some of the jokes and creating some of the harmful situations themselves. And I'm not just talking about, you know, just a random adult, like a parent or a friend of a parent or something like that. I'm talking about teachers specifically, coaches. Um, my PE teacher particularly was one that, you know, um, she body shamed me a lot. She thought I was fat and um, she would body shame me and then other um and then, you know, the students would hear her body shaming me and then they would tease me about being fat. And she created the situation and continued, you know, to allow those children to bully me and allowed that teasing to happen. And it was fully after she, you know, created the platform for it to exist on to begin with. And um, I'm not saying that children without, you know, being gently or roughly shoved in that direction may not have made fun of my body or um, anything like that but you know adults do have a lot of influence on children and they certainly there's different ways that um, they, uh, an adult could have influenced that kind of a situation you know um, had the adult been a little bit less biased to the particular type of body that I had or not been making body shaming jokes the children may not have used that platform or that specific space and had the adult been more open and loving of all body types then the children might have learned you know something around values of being open and loving to all body types and it really could have set the scene for a different situation around that specific incidents of my life where I was you know being bullied for being fat um, I think it's one specific incident that's worth bringing up and worth mentioning that you know in some ways in a lot of ways adults will go in and create that platform and create that space for the child to be bullied and they even put a lot of those ideas in the heads of the children as opposed to leading them through a deeper understanding of humanity and how we're all different and we all have different body types and talking about values and talking about you know um things that we might be able to go deeper with on our own child let's say we're talking about a situation where they're body shaming somebody or shaming the way that somebody looks in some way and you know there's a lot of opportunities there for us to go quite a bit deeper with our children and talk to them about it and, you know we can talk to them about the diversity in humans the different ways that foods affect our bodies the different ways that you know certain reasons why different people might be processing things at a different rate and so their bodies might react to things differently and then we can go even deeper you know and we can talk to our kids about things like you know if we're having a problem with somebody if we don't like somebody there's a lot of things that are really valid that we might want to bring up around you know our relationship with that person like you know I'm having a hard time because this person was really mean to me in this situation but at the same time shaming their body or shaming something physically about them or something that they can't change might not be the best way to really resolve a problem that we have with somebody and then we can go deeper into really giving our children problem-solving tools around it as opposed to you know 
shaming them for taking on some kind of an idea or for them, you know, repeating something that they heard socially or for them even, you know, seeing and perceiving things that way. And instead of shaming them for that and being like, oh, that's terrible. You should never talk poorly about somebody's body. You know, we should never body shame somebody. But we can say something like, you know, um, well, let's take a deeper look at, you know, all of the different things surrounding this. And let's have a look at this big picture and go into this thing with our children so that we can see them clearly and they can see us clearly. So I really think as gentle parents, um, the opportunities for our children to really get deep into this bullying dynamics are quite a bit lower because we as parents, we're paying attention, we're more connected, we're listening, we're hearing, we're keeping that communication open, um, we're withholding judgment so that they feel more comfortable talking to us about this stuff. And it's really there that we can find out about those details of the situation. I started out by saying, you know, bullying is a really complex topic. And um, so the one aspect that I see so clearly is the adults participating in the bullying and handing, handing down these bullying relational tools and being part of the cycle. And um, so I want to talk about those bullying relational tools that we are teaching children through the way that we relate with children. And this is one thing that as gentle parents stands as a big barrier between our children and them being the perpetrators of bullying. And not to say they're not going to try it on for size or find themselves in a situation where it's happening. Um, luckily, there'll be a lot more communication and possible outs for them throughout it because we're actively engaging and being present and because we ourselves are working so hard not to use these bullying tools when we interact with our children. But you know, anytime we override our children's autonomy, when our children say, you know, um, I don't want to do this and we say you absolutely have to, anytime that we're like, you know, instead of we as gentle parents, we often will be like, oh, we're going to leave really soon, you know, we, you got about 15 minutes and then we're going to clean this up and go on our way because we're paying attention. But a lot of adults in these situations, they tell children like right now, they're like, okay, we're done. No regards for what they're doing. They're just done right now and we're going and let's leave and the child's in the middle of something and they're dragging them out crying. And, you know, um, these things that, that are very common adult to child tools and it's set up in the power dynamic a lot again, how I was talking about how we give the entitlement. It's very similar, in fact, the way that we're perpetuating these cycles of bullying and the cycle of entitlement. Um, it's in the power dynamic is that we think that we have full and ultimate control over children. We are the parents. We are in control at all times. And anytime that a child has an opinion, they're talking back. Anytime that a child wants to say no, they're being disrespectful. Anytime that a child, you know, has a boundary, then, um, you know, we just absolutely override that boundary and tell them that their boundary is unacceptable. And these are the relational tools 
that society is handing down to children. And with these relational tools, how exactly is that child supposed to make a different choice that involves a more thoughtful, collaborative path through this thing? You know, um, basically, when we take a position of full power and authority with children, and we stand there in that position of full power and authority, we teach children that when you are bigger and stronger and have um, systematic power, as adults do over children, over another person, then you can take what you want from them by all means. And you can use whatever forms of heavy handedness and aggression and my way or the highway type of means to get that from somebody. And these tactics, that's bullying. That's being, you know, that's overriding, overriding autonomy. It's um, being disrespectful of boundaries. It's just, you know, it, it's really, it's not healthy stuff. And when our children become adults through no, like, you know, um, personal growth or emotional achievements or anything of their own, they just come into that place of power over their own children. And that's really where this cycle of abuse is created, is that we're not evaluating this power cycle and really taking a really, really good look at this power cycle and finding ways to step out of that power cycle. You know, allowing our children to have opinions, allowing them to so-called back talk <laughs> um, that gives them tools to work through things because our minds are logical processors we don't always get from a to b right in the moment that something's happening you know when our those neurons are firing down those pathways really fast sometimes the ideas that we're getting are a little bit off of base sometimes they really hit home and sometimes they're related to our biases you guys you all know i talk about that a lot you know how Sometimes our reactions are related to past circumstances and past biases and all of this stuff. So sometimes, you know, in this process, it takes a minute to get from point A to point B. We might have an altercation with somebody and we come up against it and we're really kind of angry and we shut it down and then we might think about it for a while and we go through this process. I handled that and, you know, how we feel about something in the moment that it's happening and how we feel about it two days later can be really a different thing. Allowing our children to have opinions and um, have their say in things and have choices and things like that, that allows them to use that logical part of their brain that can process the things that they've been going through, the process, the things that they've witnessed, the things that they've been part of, and help them to find logical solutions themselves, within themselves, that feel good and align with themselves. And um, allowing your children to have boundaries is one of the most powerful things you will ever do for your child um it boundaries are like they're like one of the biggest things that stand between us and abusive relationships and abusive people in our lives bullying us and overriding us and making us do things we don't want to do and making us feel like we have to say yes when we want to say no and when my child has a boundary Oh my goodness, not only do I respect that boundary, I love it. And I thank them for giving me that boundary because it's huge. 
it's so huge and as a society we don't have that relational tool we've been told that that boundary is completely unacceptable we're not allowed to have boundaries boundaries make us unlikable and unlovable and people are going to reject us for our boundaries and you know um our boundaries are invalid and all of these things that society has always told us through that power dynamic about our boundaries and we don't just suddenly not get to have boundaries for our entire lives and graduate into adulthood and have boundary setting be easy. I am 44 and boundary setting is still one of the hardest things. Oh my goodness. And especially when you know it's somebody you care about and you try and set a boundary with them and it's met with, you know, explosive or aggressive or angry behaviors and it's, huh. It's so hard to set boundaries. And so allowing our children and helping our children set boundaries is a really, really big barrier between them and bullying and them and adulthood abuse. And so boundaries are just amazing, you know, and um, letting go of that power dynamic where we think that we have ultimate control over somebody we're going to choose to engage in other relational patterns, relational patterns that involve seeing other people wholly, relational patterns that involve true understanding, compassion. They're going to empathy. Um, and all of that is backed with things like, boundaries and knowing that even though we could hold somebody in great empathy, that doesn't mean that we have to allow them to treat us poorly. So then it's backed with that knowledge that even if we can put ourselves out there, we can see people wholly and all of this stuff and we can work through relational processes and we're still allowed to hold ourselves with a healthy respect and allow ourselves a boundary and allow ourselves to be heard as well then we're going to be able to feel a lot more strong and confident working through all of these situations. And so it's all, um, you know, it's in that power dynamic. And if we aren't teaching our children that that heavy handed, when it gets to a impasse, then suddenly it's time for us to just take control and show somebody how it is. So, so then we can make different choices so that, around things when we have boundaries you know we don't always have to engage in these things and if we have supportive people around us that we can trust supportive adults as children that we can lean on that we can talk to about the intricacies about things that are going on without a lot of judgment um we're going to be able to find the empathy and understanding for others in those situations and um when we're not taught that at the end of the day, the final word comes down to, you know, we can try and compromise and compromise and compromise, and then it comes down to power and control. If we're taught instead, you know, that we have other choices in that moment where somebody would be like, power and control, this is it, then we have the ability to make those other decisions. And I know I've talked about this before too, is that when we're having an altercation with somebody, I talk about this in sibling stuff a lot, is when we're having an altercation with somebody, we're feeling upset about something. And right or wrong, we want to be seen because we want somebody to know why we're upset about something. And um, 
even if we're wrong, we still want to be seen and we still want to be heard and we still feel right. And we're still stuck in this righteous place. And we really can't hear the empathy for the other person until we feel seen, until we feel heard, until we feel understood for where we were in that moment. And then we can open up to the empathy for the other person because we don't have that fear of losing our social stature because, um, you know, we've made a mistake or something like that. And so we have this righteous self-defense that blocks us from allowing us to hear the perspective of the other person as long as we're feeling like we're, you know, still trying to be seen ourselves and we're still protecting our point of view and our place in the, in the structure. And so allowing somebody to share with you without the judgment um, where they were coming from in a situation allows them to be able to move past any kind of, you know, um, that self-defensive state that they might have been in if they were, you know, in a position where maybe somebody, maybe your child was bullying somebody and it likely didn't start just because they wanted to be mean, you know, there, there was something around it and there was all this stuff that needed to be heard and understood and I really feel, luckily for us, <laughs> that a lot of the stuff that we're doing already that's, you know, part of the foundation and the platform from which we are gentle parenting and from which we are doing this work that we're doing and paying attention to letting go of power dynamics, respecting autonomy, boundaries, and all of that. Um, as parents, it really helps to give our children a lot more tools not to become the bully to begin with and to give them a lot of outs in the situation if they find themselves in a situation where maybe that's happening, that they're becoming the bully. And when I talk about how, you know, adults, they perpetuate these cycles of bullying and everything, I, I, there's also those aspects that a lot of children you know, they're, they're really the ones that are the deepest into this bullying stuff. A lot of them are experiencing the most pain and heartache at home. Um, and a lot of times that may or may not even be their parents. It, it could be, you know, siblings or other people in the house or, you know, it's really hard to know everything that somebody might be going through. And, um, when we look at the complexities of this, I think that it's really important to acknowledge that so much of it is tied up in the generational stuff and so much of it is tied up in the way that people are being exposed to and socialized into our culture and our society. And a lot of people who are doing the bullying are very much being bullied themselves somewhere, whether that's in their home, whether it's by bigger kids or, you know, um, it's one of those cycles that it plays down where, you know, hurt people hurt people and a lot of the people perpetuating the cycle, they're jumping into that from their place of pain and they're sh um, sharing that from their place of pain. And so when we're working with our own children through incidences of bullying, um, keeping an open mind to the idea that, you know, everybody in the situation has been hurt. Everybody in the situation may feel a little bit bullied. Um, and then there was something I also um, kind of wanted to touch on, and I, I'm not really sure exactly um, 
you know, Shelly had brought this up on the call yesterday when we had discussed wanting to talk about bullying. And um, it was about, like, if your child has kind of become a bully and they were having a difficult time with this child, like, you know, in ongoing kind of situation, basically. And um, some of it is tied up in, some of it is, you know, it's all tied up in those relational biases and the histories that we have with people. And both parties have been hurting each other, you know, back and forth for years and years. And y your child is like getting to this place where they're really aggressively establishing their autonomy and stuff. And, um, maybe, you know, the things that they're saying are coming out of their mouths feel really bullying and they feel like, you know, maybe they've flipped the script here a little bit and now they're being the bully. And so I, I thought about this discussion that we had yesterday a lot and how I feel about it. And, um, you know, we, we talked, we touched on yesterday, how we're acknowledging that, you know, um, riots are the, the language of, the unheard and when people are you know getting louder and louder and louder saying that something isn't right um i think that in those situations it, it really behooves us to a um look at the boundary that continues to be crossed because if a child is you know angrily angrily you know just like ah, i don't want to be around that child and that child and then they're you know and the boundary keeps getting crossed otherwise they wouldn't continue to get that upset they wouldn't have to continue to say that they didn't want to be around the other child the boundary would be set and so if there's ways in those situations we can help our child by like switching classes then i don't think that you know and this is another societal idea that I think is really harmful, is that we think that we have to like face everything head on. If we have a problem with somebody, we're supposed to resolve that problem and walking away from them is somehow not an acceptable relational tool. If we, you know, if we start doing something, then we absolutely have to finish that thing we started. And we have a lot of pressure to get closure and to get through something right now right away and sometimes i really think as a society we need to start embracing the idea that it's okay to take a step back and that is a boundary that's a boundary and it's okay and we need to be more as a society i think we need to be more accepting of that because then we can recognize okay so you know this situation is escalating because the relational tools still aren't being offered by the adults and that's still adults allowing the cycle to continue and the cycle to perpetuate and when we talk about bullying and i start talking about kids and i think about the pain and the situations that they're in and the social infrastructures pecking orders and hierarchies among the kids and you know the mean girls and the popular boys and like the whole social structure it's 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 mind-boggling and it's painful and it's scary and everybody's insecure in that structure and i think about the kids and all i see is a lot of confusion but i i, I think about the adults and I turn back to 
adults are doing all of these things that I lined out in the beginning. They're crossing boundaries. They're removing autonomy. They're perpetuating. They're participating. They're creating platforms for it. They're creating the GD pecking orders. Like nine times out of 10, the pecking order was created by adults, you know, and it's just like, so, so then I lean into this whole, so what are our solutions? How do we fix bullying? How do we help? How do we make it better? How can we protect our children from bullying? How can we protect our children from being bullies? And my answer, it lies in the principles and the steps of gentle parenting because it's all around everything that we talk about and everything that we teach here and everything that we do here to empower our children to understand things to understand social issues to understand hierarchies and pecking orders and to understand you know the way that the world works and what systems look like and instilling them with values and supporting them through hard times and not judging them when they make mistakes and you know being that safe place for the conversation to unfold where they can admit that they made a mistake or they can admit that they treated somebody in a way that they felt was poorly and they want to make amends you know and creating the space for them to be thoughtful aware conscious individuals that are working through relational processes with people and finding their place in society as opposed to continuing to heavy hand and take over and shut down and judge and ostracize and further perpetuate the cycles and with children i think that you know we really need to dig in as adults to how much of a bully we can be and figure out exactly define for ourselves i mean what does bullying look like you know and how can we step out of that power dynamic and give our children all of these relational tools and when this stuff does come up be there for them if they're getting bullied find a way to help them you know and and if it's so bad pull them out of that school homeschool them, do whatever it is. Like, I don't know. Like, I know that's a privileged kind of a thing to say, just pull your kids out of that school. But, you know, um, as somebody who was bullied myself, um, it, it impacted my entire life. And it's still impacting me today, 30 years later. Sometimes it can come up. It recently did just the other day. It came up as if it was happening to me again and um, 30 years later. And so, you know, finding ways that we can help our children by protecting them when they're going through being bullied themselves, protect them, protect them, protect them, stand as a wall, be that fighting mama bear with a line of fire and, you know, um, do whatever within your power to protect your children when they're being bullied clearly without you know shaming the bullying children but um i would take a good look at the adults around the situation but but indeed we do have to have a real good look at what's going on around the situation and a lot of those adults really are the perpetuators of the cycles and um but protecting our children helping them have boundaries, helping them enforce their boundaries, and finding ways to really help them through 
that aspect of it. And as far as them becoming involved in any bullying and um, being, you know, perpetuating any of that themselves, then that really comes down to lots and lots and lots of conversations about you know relational tools and how we're going to work through these things and how we can do better and what it might look like for that kid that's getting bullied and empathy for them and empathy for the other kid and empathy for everybody and you know finding real ways through it so that on the other side everybody feels like they're being honored and nobody feels like they're being labeled the bad guy and ostracized and nobody's feeling like they're all just you know um, carrying pain 30, 40 years later from stuff that transpired, you know, um, during very pivotal times in our life when our brains were growing and um, defining that voice of never enough in our heads, so much of it comes right from those, like, truly impactful and pivotal years of our lives that we went through. And so for me, again, I think I'll just finish up by saying that so much of bullying is tied up in the power dynamics. And so learning how to work with our children and co-collaborate and use these gentle parenting tools is one of the biggest, one of the biggest things that we can do to really help our children to not be bullied themselves and to not become the bully. So I think just keep it up and, continue to remember that you know anytime that we're heavy handing somebody from a place of power like you know i i'm stronger than you i'm bigger than you and i'm the parent and that's why we're doing this anytime that we're heavy handing somebody like that from that place of power we're being kind of a bully and so we should try to step back from those places ourselves and make sure that we're not um, modeling bullying to our children. And when we see other adults engaging in bullying like behaviors, you know, um, particularly teachers and stuff like that, it does behoove us to say something and to call it out and to try and make some changes around the structure. And I think that it's really important to, I think it's really important to, um, particularly around structures, continue to advocate for the change around the way that we inter interact with children so that children are gaining and learning emotional awareness and they're gaining and learning tools for working through situations with people. And um, no matter where our children fall in the hierarchy and the pecking order and the cycle and all of that. Um, protecting our children, not judging them, loving them, continuing to give them these tools and working through the relational stuff and the values and all of it. And, you know, hopefully can make it through those hard times with a minimal amount of scars. And that's all I'm going to say on the topic for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd love for you to find us on social media. You can find our big parenting group, Gentle Parents Unite, on Facebook. And we also have a public page, also called Gentle Parents Unite. Our membership site, where we do more personal, intimate parenting support services and coaching and meditations and different things that we have, all geared towards really supporting parents in a really intense and personal way. 
You can just type in gentleparentsunite.com and you can find us there. Vivek's articles and videos can be found at Meaningful Ideas. Over 60 videos and between my blog and my Facebook page, about 500 articles. And we wish you all the best and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.